0: This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Get your Bibles out, we are going to get uh, going tonight. This is an exciting night for us because we are making a a turn in our series that we began on the first week of January called Heart Renovation. And we are coming to the understanding and the belief that Jesus has not only given us a new heart, but intends to do something with that heart, to form that heart into something. Ultimately, it's the image of, of Jesus, the image of Christ. And that is a process, a process that takes longer than a series. It's a process that will take our entire life. And so we have to, but like any renovation, there's a process to that. There are different steps. And so the month of January, we talked about that there's a design, that God isn't just letting our hearts be formed into something uh, just kind of ambiguous, but he's forming it into something, ultimately him. Uh, secondly, we talked about that every renovation really begins with demo, that there's some things that we just got to get real with, some things that are hiding behind the walls, some things that need to be removed. We've talked about repentance and pain and suffering and sin and, and all sorts of things that God uses and touches because He wants to shift things internally. And tonight's the first night that we are going to be turning and shifting, and we're going to be starting to talk about the building process. And the things that actually God is wanting to build, not just take away, but things he's wanting to input and and bring to our life. And I am super, super thrilled for tonight because we are beginning to be talking about the foundation. But I want to just ask a a simple question. Has anyone ever done something, maybe even for a long time, and then you realize a long time later you were doing it wrong the entire time? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like you just, you thought you were doing it right. And then all of a sudden you realize like, man, I've been doing it wrong the entire time. Uh, I had a a friend who'd come over and I would always make him French press coffee. And he loved French press coffee, this is amazing. So he went and bought a French press and, and coffee beans and grounded properly. And one night, I get a FaceTime call from my buddy, and he calls me, and he's, just like, and he's just kind of frantic. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, what am I doing wrong? And I look, and he's showing me his counters just flooded with like coffee and grounds and water. I'm like, what are you doing right? <laughs> like, what, what's happened? This isn't like rocket science, right? Like, and he's like, it's like, I'm doing what you showed me. I had like, you know, I put the, the pump in there, and then I put the coffee beans, and I kind of go up and down. And I'm like, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, no. It's not how you use a French press. No, you pour the coffee beans first, you let them soak in water, and after four minutes, you press it down. And and I kind of walked through this process, and his wife in the background was like, he's been doing this for a week. (laughs) I was like, nice, dude. I'm like, at what point did you get so frustrated that you had to call me? Like, why can't I get this? And and, and I think it's a, a great picture, because sometimes I think we have the right ingredients, we have some of the right thoughts and maybe even the right vocabulary about what it means to follow Jesus. But sometimes because we put things in the wrong order and sometimes because we haven't listened close enough, we can find ourselves with the right ingredients with, but a messy life. And so I'm really excited because a few years ago, there was, I was turned onto a podcast up in Portland from a church called Bridgetown And I listened to a pastor up there who's influenced myself, my friends down at Park Hill, in a tremendous way of just really laying out this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is how our heart is transformed. And it was the first time everything that I kind of was grasping for became simple but not watered down. It became something that I'm like, okay, this is something I can spend my life doing. And so what we're gonna be laying before you tonight, I, I believe it. This, is, this is so much bigger than a series. This is really at the core of our church, the core of what it means to follow Jesus. So I'm, I'm excited for tonight. It's a little bit of an introduction, so stick with me, but I believe it's so essential. We're gonna be building on this uh, for the next few weeks. And so uh, the, what, if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter one. We're gonna start in verse 35. Because as we're looking at this idea of what it means to follow Jesus, oftentimes we, we begin to kind of put ourselves in the box, are you a Christian or not a Christian? Wherever you are on the spectrum, we're glad you're here. You're welcome here. Um, but interestingly enough, that is not the matrix Jesus uses. As a matter of fact, the word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. Uh, but the invitation that Jesus ex- extends, the vocabulary and the language that is used is not one of Christian or non-Christian. It's the verbiage of Disciple. Uh, It's the verbiage of rabbi, it's the verbiage of following, and it's used, the word disciples used 270 times, the word rabbi is used over 60 times in the gospel, and that is the predominant imagery that we have been given. But because it's something that's so foreign to us, and something that is really beyond something that we're familiar with in our world, uh, we kind of don't know what to do with it. And because of that, I think that we're like the French press doing things wrong. We're making kind of a mess of this thing. And we have to go backwards and say, what was happening? And how do we begin to understand those truths and apply them to our life? And so our first text tonight out of John chapter 1 says this, the next day, Again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And everyone just said, poor John the Baptist. Just losing people left and right, just losing followers. Anyone can relate to that? Okay, just me? Um, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, here it is, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. Come and find out. Come and be with me. It's an invitation to a journey. And what's interesting about this journey is it's not some like, you know, oh, life's a journey kind of thing. No, no, it's a very, very specific journey. That those words that they're using here would have had massive implications. And so in order to understand that, we have to understand and unpack a little bit about the education system in an ancient Jewish culture. So I'm just gonna nerd out on you just for a second here, and if you don't care, it's okay. Come back with me in about five minutes, but the but the education system in, in, in ancient Judaism looked like this: that as a Jewish boy or girl at the around the age of five, you would start going to your local synagogue, and you would be instructed by a rabbi, and that you would be uh, admitted into what was called the bet sefer or the Beit Sefer, and the Beit Sefer was the first round of schooling that you'd be with from the time you're five until you're about 12 years old, kind of our version of elementary school, except for all you would do is memorize the first five books of the Bible, which for them was called the Torah. And it was the holy scriptures of God, and you, could, and you would have every single word memorized, um, male and female, uh, specifically the males, and then at the age of 12, you were kind of dismissed, so uh, the girls would go and they would be with their moms and soon after that they'd probably be married off. Uh, if you were a boy, you'd go and apprentice under your father. And if, if you were the elite, if you had the goods, right, you were the top of your class, straight A in little Jewish rabbi school, then you would be invited into what was called, um, you, to the next phase of school and called the Bet Talmud. And Bet Talmud was the second phase that you would actually learn to memorize the rest of the Old Testament. So from 12 to 15, imagine this. You would have from Genesis all the way through the, um, the, the wisdom literature, through the prophets, every single line memorized, right? Who here feels dumb? Like, I'm just, and, and this is why this wasn't for everyone. This was for, again, those who could really grasp it. And as that was going on, the rabbis doing the instructions would observe who was the best and the brightest of that class. And whoever is the best and the brightest of that class would be given an invitation. And that invitation was become a Talmudim. And a Talmudim was a student of, or a disciple of, a rabbi. Now, the Jews did not invite the idea of discipleship. Actually, the Greeks were doing it for a long time, and so Plato and Socrates had disciples. Uh, Rabbi Hillel had about 70 disciples. So Jesus having disciples was not a new concept. It was actually kind of built into their framework. But the people who were the disciples were the best, they're the people who are the brightest, who had done all the hard work, who had achieved a certain status. And in the Jewish world, the spirit, your spiritual and religious uh, kind of success matched your social success. And we, have, again, we, in, in our secular culture, we have no real scale for that. But in Judaism, the higher you went in kind of your religious class system, the more power and authority you had. Because you were underneath the Roman rule, you really didn't have any other way to decide who was the greatest, who was the best, who was the brightest. And so the very few select would be able to do that. And at, from about age um, 15, if you, if you were selected to follow a rabbi, to the age of 30, you had 15 years, and you had three goals. And their three goals were pretty simple. They were this. Be with your rabbi. So you would leave everything, your family, your hometown. You'd follow around that rabbi. There's an ancient Hebrew blessing said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. You would just literally walk so close and never leave your rabbi's side. The second goal of the the Talmudim was that you'd become like your rabbi. So you would mimic how they talked and how they walked, what they would do, their interpretation of the Old Testament. And so everything your rabbi would do, you'd wanna become that. And lastly, your third goal as a Talmudim is that you would want to do what your rabbi did? So again, if those over those 15 years you proved yourself faithful, the rabbi would look to you at age 30, and he would say something like this: "Go and make talmudims. Go and make your own disciples." Uh, does anyone recognize that language? It's the language at the Great Commission, right? When Jesus, before he goes up to heaven, looks at his disciples and said, you go make disciples. You've accomplished your task. You go and you find other Talmudim's and you do the same thing that I did for you. And so I hope this is kind of coming to life for you. This is exactly what Jesus' invitation is. Now, here's here's the temptation. We can think that the disciples were the 12. That's better classified as the apostles. The disciples, Jesus had tons of disciples, um, and we know that there was men and women disciples, the first Jewish rabbi who would allow women to be his disciples. And so all the ladies said, what? Yes. Come on. Amen. So, uh, and, but, and, here's, and here's the amazing thing. Beyond just inviting men and women to be his disciples, there is this radical verse uh, in, in Luke chapter 9. He says this, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. I've always read that, and that whole, like, take up your cross daily thing freaks me out. Like, I'm like, that's pretty, like, intense. Not, not the verbiage that would have freaked out the original audience. The word that really would have stuck out to them is the word whoever. Whoever wants to follow me. Jesus, as far as we know, was the first rabbi to have an open invitation of discipleship. Anybody can be my disciple. Do you, you hear that? Everyone sitting here tonight, anybody and everybody is welcome to follow Jesus. And this is an important invitation because it's, again, drastically different than our, than our understanding of faith and religion. Um, if you look at the census a few years ago, 76% of America checked the box, they identified themselves as a Christian. Um, which is awesome. I loved reading that stat. It made me feel really good. Uh, and then a number of independent uh, statisticians went and surveyed the United States, and they found that of the 76% of America who chose that, actually only 8% identified as people who follow Jesus. That is a massive gap. That's not like a couple percentage off, which lets me know that there is something, there's something off. In, in our understanding of what it means to have Jesus take hold of our heart. And so this is something I just wanna lay before you. is really simple. Listen, the invitation of Jesus is not to become a Christian uh, in, in the sense that we would ca- kind of know it culturally. The invitation of Jesus is follow me. Follow me, become my Talmudim. Now, the word talmudim oftentimes is, again, it's again a tricky word. The word disciple means student, which in, doesn't really help us either because our idea of students is that you have your AirPods in and you're taking notes, and you have your nice cup of like a latte next to you from like Lofty, and you know, and it's kind of, That's not a student. You see, the the best translation we have for disciple for talmudim is apprentice. As an apprentice, as someone who goes, and let's look at those rules, right, you're with your rabbi, you become like your rabbi, and you ultimately have to do what your rabbi did. So it's not something you just go and learn in a class or in a lecture hall, you don't just come and take notes, it's something you have to participate in, which means so much of our transformation of our heart does not happen in this room. It cannot, it cannot, cannot. we cannot be discipled sitting in a chair. Discipleship happens when we follow the rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus, and we are with him, we become like him, and we do what he did. So I'm going to go ahead and put that on the screen, those three goals. Those are our three goals as a church when it comes to being an apprentice of Jesus, practicing the way of Jesus. Um, We can go back to the other one is to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. So we're going to be spending time on these three things because this is how we believe our heart is transformed. But there's a specific order to this. Number one is be with Jesus. This is what we're going to be calling the foundation. So this next little uh, section of our series is called the foundation part, right? This is the, where the groundwork gets laid. Secondly, we're going to be talking about become like Jesus. And this is going to be our framework, right? These are the bones of what we are, their character, the inner working of who we are our priorities and our motivations. And lastly is the the functionality. It's what people see. It's the paint on the walls. It's the fixtures, right? And this is what people see. is do what Jesus did. Oftentimes we want to jump to that, right? Get the WWJD bracelet and we're like ready to go. Uh, But there's this this order that has to be done. And and number one is what we're going to be diving into the next few weeks. What does it mean to be with Jesus? Jesus, because that's our foundation. Uh, anyone ever done construction in this room, right? Uh, not me. Um, so, but. When I was growing up, I used to always take these radical missions trips down to Tijuana and Ensenada on the weekends about twice a year, and we'd go with YWAM, and we'd build a house in a weekend. It was amazing, and they'd have all the materials that the church would buy. YWAM, who lived in the cities, would identify a family who's deeply in need, and it was, it was incredible. You'd watch this house be constructed in a weekend um, that would be painted and have drywall, and oftentimes there'd be a garden around it, and the best Day was the last day where you'd give them the keys and without fail they'd be crying and, and it was just it, like it, it honestly was doing something in my heart was so good but there's something as I think back to it that I was never allowed to do the church was never allowed to do and that was the foundation because if the framing's off you can fix it if the drywall's bad you can change it out if the foundation is off you have a problem And so they would reserve that for professionals. They would have to come in and make it level and strong. And and the concrete that they would use had to be a specific kind that would last uh, within the kind of the soil that they were setting that in. And, And I think that that's a really great picture because if our foundation's off, if we do not understand what it means to just be with Jesus, we will quickly be trapped into this snare of religiosity Paul talks about this often, that we can actually become like Jesus and do what Jesus did and completely miss it. It's frightening. So we've got to get this right. We've got to get the foundation of this right. And so we're going to kind of lay out just kind of three points, uh, and we're going to kind of do this in a sentence. There should be a sentence that says this, it is his initiation through the incarnation that requires our participation. These are gonna be our three points tonight we're gonna be walking through. This is, again, this is not exhaustive. This is just the beginning point of what it means to be with Jesus. And the very first point tonight is his initiation. Now, we were not allowed to lay the foundation, and I'm gonna say this. You do not lay the foundation for your own relationship with Jesus. He does. So we have to begin there. Because if we think that we are the ones who've constructed and founded and laid a foundation of our relationship with Jesus, then really he has no part that he's played at all. I love this verse in Revelation chapter three when Jesus is talking prophetically through John to the church of Laodicea and he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. If anyone hears my voice, I'm standing at the door and knocking. And this is so huge because if, if you were to just ask them, if I were to ask you, hey, what's your, what's your faith story? How did you come to follow Jesus? If you're like me, 95% of the time, it sounds like you found Jesus, not that he found you. I was in a tough time in my life, and I just knew I needed to get back to church. And so I started reading my Bible, and I came back and got my life. And it's, or man, I was I was off chasing these things. I found myself there, and then I just woke up and I realized I had to run. And it's, we're laying our own foundation, so we have to begin with this point that Jesus found us. This is why I love the imagery the Scripture uses of adoption. I choose that person. I'm paying the fee. I'm laying down my life and welcoming them in. It's his initiative that has come after every single one of us. And the reason why that is so crucial is because if you think you are the one who's creating the initiative, then that relationship, that intimacy you're going to have with Jesus is going to be um, as unstable as your emotions and your experiences But if you know that there is a God who's relentlessly pursuing you, has been pursuing you, and won't stop pursuing you, and that's the foundation you build your your life upon, then even when you waver, even when you doubt, even when you find yourself struggling and lost, you can know for sure God has not stopped knocking at my door. He's the initiator. He's the one who's gone after me. Now, and if you know, Jen and I, we have an ongoing debate about who initiated our relationship. Is she in the room right now? Oh, man, I was, I was going to tell him the truth that I did. But, yeah, I guess you have to ask her. Um, but we, it's always, always like, to this day, we always argue about it. But this is what I want to make clear. There's no debate in Scripture who initiated it. John 6 says that no one comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws him. It's him. Jesus initiates. He comes after us. And then it's it's, it's vital for us to begin there. The second thing that we're going to move on to is this idea of the incarnation. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you might associate the incarnation with with Christmas. It's the theological term that Jesus left heaven, came to earth, um, which is all true. It's very true. That's where the incarnation begins. But I want to just lay out before you that I don't think that's where the incarnation ends a matter of fact, as of this week, I've come, become convinced that the incarnation has not ended, that the relationship that we have with Jesus is not tied to the historical fact that Jesus came once, that's, that's where it begins, but that the fact that his presence is still here. You might be like, well, how does that work? And that's a, it's a brilliant question. How are we supposed to be with Jesus if Jesus isn't here? Ever thought about that? It's a little hard. This is like a long-distance relationship thing, you know? Like, how do we how do we do that? You know, FaceTime, signal connection, heaven's not super great right now, so it's it's kind of hard to build intimacy with someone who's just not here right now. Well, thankfully, God's brilliant. He thought about that, and He provided with us a plan that is not just a secondary plan, but it's it's brilliant and incredible. Listen, to this, this is in John chapter fourteen. It says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but here it is, is, isn't? but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so Jesus, as he's getting ready to be crucified and resurrected and return to the right hand of the Father, gives them this promise. He says... As I go, I'm leaving you with the advocate, right? The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And he's gonna come and he's he's around you, he's with you. And then he tells the disciple, and he will be in you because this this has not been the day of Pentecost yet, right? He has not died and rose again. But after Jesus rose from the dead, 50 days later, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the church and has not left. The Holy Spirit is with us. Now you might sit here and be like, So, but wouldn't it just be better if I could actually like just hang out with Jesus, right? I could actually be with him. Um, Fair question. According to Jesus, the answer to that is actually no. He looks at his disciples who are asking the exact same question that we just talked about, and he says, "It is better that I go away." What a bold statement! It's, it's not just okay that I'm leaving. I'm sending someone who's going to take care of you. It's better that I'm leaving. Because if I don't leave, then, we won't, then Father won't send the helper. And so in Jesus' mind, he's looking at disciples and says, listen, you think hanging out with me is cool? It's going to actually get better. He actually tells them, you will do greater things than I. Read it, read it in John chapter 14, 15, 16. The, the, the amount of value Jesus places on the role of the Holy Spirit is profound. This is not a secondary relationship. This is the primary way we connect with Jesus. So how do we be with Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Here's a sentence on your screen. It says the most vital ingredient in what it means to be with Jesus is to cultivate an awareness of and an intimacy with the Holy Spirit. This is it. How do we be with Jesus? We have to cultivate an awareness of, right, he's around us, he's he's always with us, and an intimacy with a relationship, a dialogue, a closeness with the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the comforter, the, the spirit of truth. This is the vehicle God has given us into relationship, that we don't have to settle for religion, that we have been given the gift of a relationship with our Creator. And, and I, love, I love this concept because I'm gonna, we're gonna do our best over the next few weeks to move this kind of from this nebulous kind of like, well, what does that mean? Is it kind of all feeling? And the answer to that is no. It doesn't mean that God doesn't use our emotions and feelings from time to time. But I believe that there's a a real practical sense of what it means to connect with the Holy Spirit. There's an interview uh, in the 80s where Dan Rather uh, was interviewing Mother Teresa. What a a cool opportunity, right? And, uh, And in this interview, Dan Rather asks Mother Teresa and says, When you pray to God, what do you say? And Mother Teresa says, I don't say anything. I just listen. Dan Rather says, well, what does he say to you? Mother Teresa, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. And Dan Rather just kind of, at that point, just pauses and, like, doesn't know what to say, which is weird for, like, a TV anchor, right? And then after a minute, she says, she looks at him and says, and if you can't understand that, I'm sorry I can't explain it to you. I I love that dialogue. Because I mean Mother Teresa who's just adored and rightfully so for her, for how she her heart was transformed like Jesus, right? Being with Jesus. And we look at we look that she did what Jesus did, as she spent time in, in in Calcutta with those who were on their way to, to death, and she just gave her life to these people who were forgotten. But it began with this. It began, she was being with Jesus. Her connection to God through the Holy Spirit was in such a level. I mean, you guys, you know those people in your life you can just be with. You don't have to say a word, and you just feel totally connected. And, the, and it's not everyone. Most of the time, like introverts, can help me out? It's like work. Like with people, you're like, oh, I have to like make small talk with you. Church is the worst. Like I have, to, I have to pretend to like you, and oh, it's exhausting. I get home. I just want to zone out and drink some tea and go to bed, but then there's those people that you can just be with. Um, I love being with, with my wife and I love talking with her, but I love the fact that I can just I can be driving and it can be quiet and I'm with her and, I'm, and I just know she's there, she knows me, I know how she's doing, she knows what I'm doing because we're so intimately connected. And I love Mother Teresa's language because it's it's lending to that same idea. No, 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 God listens. I listen. There is this connectedness, this depth to our relationship. Um, Earlier this this week, I was reading about um, this French cook in the 1600s who found himself committing tons of, of sin that he felt incredibly guilty for. And so he decided that he should be punished for his sin and gave himself over and decided to live the rest of his life at this monastery being the cook for for free. That that would be his kind of penance. And And he wrote that to his surprise as he found himself in this monastery, rather than finding punishment, he felt joy and delight. And in this monastery, this French cook hundreds of years ago began to become keenly aware of the presence of God and started to write letters back and forth to some of the people that he knew. And after he died, they were collected into a short book, and this book is called The Practice of the Presence of God. The author is named Brother Lawrence. He was not a priest. He was not a saint. He had really no uh, reputation whatsoever other than the fact that this very common man Figured it out. And um, it's a short book. You can read it in one sitting. Uh, highly encourage you to do so. It's not like a theology book. Um, but, man, it is challenging and amazing and encouraging. Because he, he writes in this place. Of, it's like, I, I am always aware of the presence of God. I'm always talking to him. If I'm here, I'm doing this, I'm walking to town. We think he was lame because he hated going to town to buy the groceries. He said, something I used to hate, I've come to love because it's another opportunity for me to connect with God. So he writes this quote I wanted to share with you that is just kind of blowing my mind. He says this, the time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer, and in the noise and clatter of my kitchen while several persons are at a time calling for different things, right? Can you imagine that? Like this, this old French kitchen and like little French priests yelling, like I need more French fries, whatever. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so the calling is in this noise, <laughs> isn't what he said. I don't know. <laughs> he says, I possess God as with great tranquility as I am on my knees before the blessed sacrament. I possess God as with great tranquility as I am on my knees before the blessed sacrament. And 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 I and I read that line again and again. And I'm just like, how? how do you possess God with as great tranquility as you do when you're taking communion? Any, anyone else? I have four kids. Hello, dear Jesus, help me. Like the reason we have the amazing uh, Nikita and Abby is directing our children's ministry is I just want to break bread sometimes in the quiet right of this room and spend time with Jesus. But as I'm reading this, he's just saying, he's like, there's not a difference. I'm experiencing God Always, always, right? Sitting in the five freeway at five o'clock between Encinitas and Carlsbad and you're not moving, right? Sitting there in the coffee shop that has really slow internet, right? Sitting, sitting there when you, you just these points in life when you're just like, ah, just, God's presence is as available to us in those moments as when we're sitting here hearing these beautiful hymns and songs. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the, you see, the incarnation did not stop when Jesus left. The incarnation continues to be available to us. God incarnate with us, Emmanuel, is still true because of the Holy Spirit. And our connectedness to him is what is going to build the foundation we need for the life of transformation Jesus desires. Our third point tonight, our last point, is as much as Jesus initiates, as much as this is a gift through the incarnation of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it does not let us not do anything. It requires our participation. I love the passage that we read out of John 14, begins with, if you obey my commands. It's this idea of practice. It's this idea that we get to learn to keep in step with the Spirit we read in Galatians chapter 5 last week. This is our role. That This is not something that we get inspired by. This is not something that we just kind of think about and we hear a series or a podcast or read a book. No, no. This is something, and here's the key word, practice. We practice. We have to And so if you're like, well, like, I would love to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, but I just don't feel him. I totally understand that because that's not the goal. The goal is to practice the presence of God, to do what Jesus is doing, become like Jesus, to be with him. This is one of the reasons why we encourage tools like the Lectio Divina Journal. Can I I tell you, there's something holy about my day when I wake up before my children do and I sit in my, in my black chair in my living room and the sun's coming through my window and for just a moment in my day, it's quiet. And I just, it's me, the Holy Spirit, the living word of God and my almond milk latte. It's just everything I need <laughs> to have a moment with Jesus. And that moment for me, can I, can I tell you, it's something that began out of discipline and now I crave it crave it. I go to bed thinking about that moment. And, and this is more than a moment. This is a practice that he wants to begin in, in our lives. And we're going to be talking about what are those practices that we can begin to incorporate in our life. And whether you want to call that spiritual formation or sanctification or discipleship, I don't care what you call it. Um, we're going to be calling it practicing the way. This is how we begin to have this relationship with Jesus. So I just want to Leave you with this quote um, from Dallas Willard, and I've said it before, but it bears repeating. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. I mean, just that keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part is thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may as well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. All of you thinking about Handel's ice cream right now, this is you, okay? But these are habits, not the law of gravity. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. Here it is. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Holy Spirit, Would God become the great longing of our heart? Are you ever before our mind, Lord Jesus?